0: I'd like to have you turn, if you will, in your Bibles to Psalm 119. There's a lot, a lot of uh, of verses, 176 to be sure, but we're not going to do them all today. I'd like to focus your attention upon eight verses, beginning with verse 105. A very popular verse, one well known by a lot of people. And in fact, uh, the basis for the title of this message, Thy Word is a Lamp Unto My Feet. Thy Word is a Lamp Unto My Feet and a Light unto my path. I have sworn, and I will perform it, that I will keep thy righteous judgments. I am afflicted very much. Quicken me, O Lord, according unto thy word. Accept, I beseech thee, the free will offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me thy judgments my soul is continually in my hand yet do I not forget thy law the wicked have laid a snare for me yet I erred not from thy precepts thy testimonies have I taken as an heritage forever for they are the rejoicing of my heart I have inclined Mine heart to perform thy statutes always, even unto the end. There's no question that if you have ever done a study on the book of Psalms that these words are in fact written, all 150 psalms themselves are written to be sung. They were sung at various occasions, sung in worship-type services, sung, sung during the festivals in many cases, and many of them sung by the psalmists themselves in the midst of their times of trial and struggle. And shared with the children of Israel because they understood a little bit about trials and struggle. But as I considered this particular passage, verses 105 down through uh, 112, I used to wonder why it was that the psalmist mentioned both a lamp and a light in this most popular verse, verse 105. The first thought would have to be, of course, the poetic nature of the whole book itself. As I've already mentioned, there were passages that were songs that were to be sung. And not only to be read. But there's an even more practical reason for the use of these words. And very simply, a light on a path shows us the direction in which we are heading. A lamp shows us the next step. Now let me repeat that. A light on the path shows us the direction in which we are heading. A lamp shows us the next step. A light, no matter how bright, will not show us all the twists and the turns ahead on the road, but will give us a general sense of direction. That is what the Word of God does. And in fact, when you consider all 22 sections of Psalm 119, it is all about the Word of God. It is about the Word of God as His commandments, as His laws, as His ordinances, as His statutes, and as His judgments. It's all about the word of God. What it does for us, and and think about this, as believers in Jesus Christ today, it lights the sinner's path to Jesus Christ. While we walked in this world, we didn't have that light. At times, we actually rejected the light. In fact, that's what John writes in the beginning of this first, uh, 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 in the beginning of the gospel. That man rejected his light. We rejected his light. But for each and every one of us who, who loves Jesus today and knows Christ intimately, it has to do with the very fact that his light pointed the way to the light who is Christ. But the word of God as light also lights the believer's path to glory. So his light pointed us to Christ, and now his light shines forth that path that we are to walk each and every day of our lives. Now, there's an interesting proverb that uh, Solomon, the son of David, had written, and that is in Proverbs chapter 4. And I want you all to see the contrast here between light and darkness. I really wanted to focus your attention on one verse, but... Uh, You you need to look at the context of, of this whole passage. So in Proverbs 4, verses 14 through 19, it says here, Enter not into the path of the wicked. Now that's wise counsel for us as believers. Believers are already there. I mean, I should say unbelievers are already there. So enter not into the path of the wicked and go not in the way of evil men. Avoid it, pass not by it, turn from it, and pass away. For they sleep not, except they have done mischief. And their sleep is taken away unless they cause some to fall, which is a very interesting statement that says some people just, you know, can't even get to sleep at night until they do something bad to somebody. Or until they go out and commit some kind of mischief. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But here's the contrast, verse 18. But the path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. The path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect or complete day. That is how our lives are being led by the word of God each and every day. To where? To the very place where God is. The path of the just. The path of the righteous. And by the way, we're not just or righteous in and of ourselves. We are that because we have put on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Notice again the contrast in verse 19. The way of the wicked is as darkness. They know not at what they stumble. Now, for obvious reasons, the scriptures do not unroll the whole map of life before us. I'm sure there are some of us that have asked the question, you know, Lord, can you show me what's going to happen tomorrow? Can you show me what's going to happen maybe uh, in about an hour or two? I, I just, it would make me feel a lot better if you would let me know. Sometimes we have that thought in our minds because we're thinking I'm going to face something really weird and I'd like to know where where God's going to have me in that scenario. <laughs> and the Lord says, "No." See because if he does that, where's faith then? How do we activate our faith if we already know what's going to happen? So for obvious reasons, the scriptures don't unroll the whole map of life before us, because if it really did, we would be too too terrified at some of the darker valleys or rocky roads along the way. And I'd like to, I'd like to meet somebody who hasn't had one of those. I'd like to meet somebody who hasn't had a, a rocky road. I'm not talking about the ice cream or had dark valleys that they've had to traverse What the Word of God does, though, is it gives us broad, general principles. Principles that we need to know and principles that we need to follow. Uh, For instance, God gave the Jewish people 613 specific and detailed commandments. 613 specific and detailed commandments, and yet the New Testament reduced them to several principles. Take, for example, that in the Word of God in the New Testament... God does not say this. God does not say, Tom, I want you to marry Susie. Or he doesn't say, Jane, don't marry Billy. We won't see that in the scriptures. What do we see? Well, the scripture simply says in 2 Corinthians six fourteen, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? That is what it says. These are principles boiled down for us to understand that this is how we are to walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling as believers in Jesus Christ. We sometimes have the wrong view of how we are to use the Word of God. Some years ago in England, there there lived a man named Goodman who was a well known servant of the Lord. He told of an incident in his life when he was seeking guidance from the Lord as to whether or not he should take a certain journey. He said that he opened his Bible and his eyes fell on the words, the steps of a good man are ordered of the Lord. And and he read his own name, Goodman, into the text. And he is assured that he was now to go ahead and take this trip. And I just thought, well, it's a good thing he hadn't read at that moment of Judas going out to hang himself. Is that the way some people do? I mean, it really is, you know, I've known people that open the Bible and put their finger, you know, on something, and then they say, oh, that's what I need to do. Well, be very careful in the Gospels, because you might just meet up with Judas. Are you guys here? Are you awake? Okay, all right. Well, that one might have just gone over your head. But the Word of God is also a lamp to our feet. Because there are times when we need something more specific than a general principle. We need to know exactly what the next step should be. And there are times when the Holy Spirit all of a sudden illumines a specific text or passage of Scripture and allows it to speak directly to the need of the moment. Not not, not by playing spiritual roulette here. That's not what we mean. But it's by by allowing us to to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. By spending enough time in the Word of God to know that sometimes the Lord will lead us to certain passages that we've already read, that we've already known, that are in our minds and in our hearts. And sometimes it awakens us to the fact that we have it there for that reason. The great prayer warrior, George Mueller, used to say that often the stops as well as the steps of a good man are ordered of the Lord. The stops, as well as the steps. There are times when the Lord would have us not take a step. That comes from him, through his word. It is a matter of essential significance that once the Lord has indicated the way we are to take, we obey his leading. That's our part, obedience. And it brings us to the next verse, verse 106. I have sworn and I will perform it, that I will keep thy righteous judgments. You know, it's been said that a promise is one thing. Performance is something else entirely. We've all, I'm sure, at some point in time in our life, made promises. I would like to believe that all of us have made promises that we've kept. Unfortunately, we all have probably forgotten to keep certain promises, or maybe we never intended to keep a certain promise. We're human. We make those kinds of decisions that sometimes lead to certain consequences that remind us That we need to let our yes be yeses and our noes to be noes. And what we promise, then that's what we do. But although many people make promises to the Lord in their most desperate times. Have you ever remembered that? Oh, Lord, if you get me out of this particular situation, I'll do this and that. And I'll go here and there. And I'll just bring all the, you know, the aborigines in Australia back to, you know, to the Lord or whatever. You make those kinds of promises. It's made in a very desperate time. Not many are going to be ready and willing to keep that word. Israel's promise to God in the wilderness. Here's a good example from scripture. Israel's promise to God in the wilderness was this: In Exodus 19 verse eight. Now we know that in Exodus 19 and Exodus 20 is, is, is the Lord having given the law written by the finger of God unto stone tablets given to Moses to bring to the people and present it to the people as ten commandments that they are to keep and to follow and we're told in verse 8 of Exodus 19 all the people answered together and said all that the Lord has spoken we will do and Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord Now, now notice what he said, what they said all that the Lord has spoken we will do I'm sure that some of them looked at that and said, well, there's only 10 commandments. We can do 10. We can keep track of them in our fingers. But before the month was out, if you know the the story here in the the account in, in, in Exodus, you know one thing, that before that month was out, the nation was dancing around a golden calf. You see, the only one who has ever kept his word completely is the Lord Jesus Christ. He kept God's word to the letter. Every chapter, every verse, every line. And as he stepped out of eternity into our time, time continuum, this is what he said. Now, this is a quote in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7, that comes, of course, out of the Old Testament. One of the Psalms, it says, Hebrews 10, verse 7. Then said, I lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me to do thy will, O God. What is it that the Messiah said? I come to do thy will, O God. That is the phrase that he said. I come to do thy will, O God. Jesus kept his Father's righteous judgment and not just those judgments recorded in the Mosaic Law and in the prophets, but those judgments that he interpreted himself in what is called the Sermon on the Mount. And not just in letter, but also in spirit. Not just in their content, but also in their intent. Not just in the content. You know, some of us will do certain things that we're commanded to do, but we don't like it very much. We might follow the content, but the intent of the heart isn't there. You tell your child, I want to talk to you, sit down. And they don't want to sit down. Finally, you get them to sit down. And they say to you, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. You see the difference? Jesus, though... When he kept the law, when he kept every word of the father and every word of the scriptures and every word of the commandments and every, every word of the law, he kept the content as well as the intent of his heart. Righteousness, you see, motivates our commitment to obedience. Righteousness uh, motivates our commitment to obey God. It is something that every believer in Jesus Christ is given the opportunity to do. I don't have to do this. I get to do this. I get to honor my God by following his law, by following his word, by following his commands, by following that which exalts him. So in this, consider our level of commitment and the value of God's commands. Has God ever given us anything to do that would be harmful to us? Everything He does, everything He's given, is for our good. It's actually for two things it's always for His glory and for our good. So, why do we hesitate or why do we struggle? Because of the flesh. That, that's an ongoing thing that we see in the scriptures. The flesh against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. Paul talked about it quite a bit, especially in the book of Romans. Even Jesus himself would would, would talk about the fact that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We have to consider this. This is this moment right here, right now. The moment of, of understanding what Paul said when he said, examine yourselves to see that you are in the faith. That examination is saying, I have to understand the level of commitment that I have toward the Lord, which means it is an all-out commitment. You might have noticed if you had gotten one of these little note things that it was a totally different verse and passage and title. The Lord had me change that yesterday. What I was going to give you was something that I'll be teaching at a at a Pastors and Leaders Conference in Omaha this coming week. One of the things that I was focusing on in that particular study was Paul's singleness of mind. He had a single mind. And his single mind was to be committed completely and entirely and totally to the Word of God and to Jesus Christ. And to the church. We have to have that level of commitment as believers in Jesus Christ. And when you have that level of commitment, you also have an understanding of the value of God's commands. Remember, everything that he commands is for his glory and for our good. But now we have to deal with some of the the struggles that we deal with as believers in Jesus Christ while we live in flesh. Consider what the psalmist says in verse 107. The next verse, I'm afflicted very much. Quicken me, O Lord, according unto thy word. He says, I'm afflicted very much, but make me alive. The word quicken here, of course, is the King James. That means to make alive or to revive. Revive me, O Lord, according unto thy word. And as we have probably noticed, when going through the whole of the Psalms, the psalmist, and of course, there are a number of psalmists. You know, there was David and uh and others, and the, the, even Moses was, was uh, is, is attributed to, or there's a psalm attributed to Moses himself as well. But the, the psalmist in general suffered from affliction and, and consequently what would be considered deep depression that would follow him. And, and And let me just say, you know, when I use the word depression, I'm not talking from a clinical sense. I'll explain that as you'll see in the scriptures in just a moment. But where could the psalmist go for help whenever he would mention his times of disquietedness or his times of struggle or his times of trial or affliction? Where could he go for help? I mean, there really was only one solution that would occur to him. And it occurred to him often. That's why he was a psalmist and not just another, uh, you know, Joe out on the streets. The only solution that would occur to him was to go to God's word. And it was to go to God himself. His affliction, by the way, and this is what we need to understand here his affliction, his suffering, whatever it was, his suffering came from outside. It came from without. There's without and there's within. There's outside and there's inside. It came from outside. We can gather from many statements in this psalm here, Psalm 119, that the psalmist was disliked by a number of powerful and influential enemies. But it was God's word that lifted his thoughts above them all, right up to the throne, right up to the Lord, to the one who was mightier than his foes. And when we are weak and when we are vulnerable, the word of God gives us a frame of reference outside of ourselves. Because inside of ourselves, we're going, ah, ooh, yeah, ah, you know, just kind of like figuring out what's going on, we're trying to figure out what's going on. But the word of God points to someone bigger than our circumstances. I've asked some people the question, how big is your God? How big is our God? Is he bigger than the circumstance that you're going through right now? Because the way it sounds, you've made the circumstance look a lot bigger than the God that we serve. You know, it would do us well if we would remember that the God who created millions of galaxies is not to be frustrated or stymied by a mere man or frustrated or stymied by a fallen angel or a demon or even the devil himself. He's not going to be stymied by them. Those are created beings. And no matter what power they may wield, God is not frustrated by anything. So that's the dealing with the affliction. As the psalmist's affliction came from the outside or from without, his depression came from inside, from within. He needed to be revived. He needed to be quickened. He had allowed his circumstances to get him down. But the word of God is designed to minister to our spirit, fortifying our heart, fortifying our soul to make us spiritually alive. And let's remember this. If we are believers in Jesus Christ, we are spiritually alive. Read the second chapter of Ephesians. We were once dead in our trespasses and sins. But God be thanked. Who is rich in his mercy. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. That God has given us life. And revived us. We've always been alive physically, but we were dead spiritually before Jesus. So the Word of God is designed to minister to us, to our spirit, to our hearts, to our souls, to make us spiritually alive and keep us spiritually alive. I mean, it deals with anxiety. Anxieties are mentioned in the scriptures. Jesus mentioned them? The apostles mentioned them? The apostles dealt I mean had to deal with them. Jesus was the one that dealt with them. Guilt, we see guilt in the scriptures. We struggle with guilt all the time. And then there is this issue of depression. The word of God deals with that sense. It deals with inhibitions and fears. And what some people may call negative feelings that torture us within, negative feelings. I've always struggled with the the positive-negative thing, you know, Uh, we have in certain pockets of the church, you know, these teachings of positive confession and negative confession. We've probably all heard about that. Well, I don't know where positive and negative is, except, you know, in science, uh, when it comes to electricity, or magnets, you know, have a positive charge, a negative charge, or whatever. As I look at the Word of God, I don't look at positive, negative. I look at godly and ungodly. And I'll give you a, a, let me give you an example of that. Because it's easy to go around and say, you know, brother, you're being bothered because you have negative confessions. You're, you're confessing something negatively. Or, you know, you need to, you know, positively confess. Look, we don't need the positive or the negative. We are to confess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. It's just downright what we're supposed to do. But I want to give you an example of this because it can be connected to a statement that was made by Paul. And I've added some verses to give you some context. St. Paul is in Romans chapter 14, is is talking to you know to to the church there that uh, in Rome that uh, there were certain people that, that that didn't have a problem with eating certain kinds of of, of foods, but those particular foods were, were uh, stumbling others or offending others, you know, or a certain drink that they were drinking. They were, they were being, uh, certain people were being offended. In fact, you know, Paul would call them weak, the weaker in the faith, but this is what he says to them. He says, it is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine or anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended. Don't do things that would offend someone else. Or is made weak. Now he asks the question. Has thou faith? Do you have faith? Well, have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. And he that doubteth is damned if he eat. Because he eateth not of faith. And here is what he says. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. If it's not of faith where we are trusting God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and seeking to live our lives godly before the Lord, then it is sin, and sin is ungodliness. So consider then this this whole issue. You know, I don't see the words positive negative in Scripture. What I see is godly and ungodly. God called us to be living our lives godly before Him. Read the second and third chapters of Titus. Paul's letter to Titus. So conversely then, the, the word of God strengthens our hope in the one who made us and knows us and loves us. And it links our weakness to his strength. And I want to I repeat that because I don't want you to miss this point. The word of God strengthens our hope in the one who made us and knows us and loves us and it links our weakness to his strength. What I just said is that each and every one of us in here has weaknesses, whether anybody will tell you differently. We all have fears. We're in flesh. We all have struggles. We all have trials. Some of us are undergoing certain physical and medical conditions today, but we're here. And rejoicing in the God who gave us life to come to worship him and to praise him in this place today. And I struggle with anybody that goes around saying, oh, you shouldn't, you know, don't confess that. Hey, i got to confess it. Are we not called to be honest? To be above board in everything that we are and what we say? Be careful with those who judge you and look down at you. Think of the, the, the psalmist in Psalm 43, verse 5, when he says to himself, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Now, I've oftentimes said this. It's okay to talk to yourself. Just be careful not to answer yourself. Then we'll think, Hmm. Eh. You know, years ago, I I don't know why I'm I'm saying this now, but I'll I'll get back to Psalm 43. But, you know, years ago, you know, when you see somebody walking down the street and you could tell them that they were struggling a little bit with themselves, that they'd be talking to themselves and a lot of times answering themselves. Nowadays, you see that happening all the time. Why? Because they got these little things in their ears and they're talking to somebody else and you're like, Wondering. I'm sure that some are still talking to themselves, but others are just talking to somebody else, but you'll never know that. Then you think the whole world is crazy, you know. Okay, get that out. I just got it out. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Cast down, disquieted. That's depressed. That's depression. The answer now, and he does give the answer to himself. Hope in God. For I shall yet praise him with the health of my countenance and my God. That's coming back to the reality of who God is in our lives. We have to ask ourselves. Here's the examination part of what Paul teaches us in 2 Corinthians. Examine yourselves to see that you're in the faith. Why art thou cast down on my soul? Why are you going through what you're going through? Why are you disquieted within me? Why? Well, hope in God. That's the answer. You've known that answer for how long? 10, 20, 30, 40 years? For I shall yet praise him. Who is the health of my countenance. And my God. Now, what is it that Paul himself has said in this, in this regard? What Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, and there's a lot here, and you might want to read all of chapter 12. It's a time when, when Paul is, 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 is speaking of a time when he, he actually was carried up into the third heaven. And he doesn't talk about himself directly. He knows he uses the third person. But, but he said here, when having to face... the thorn in the flesh from Satan. He asked God three times really to remove it, to take it away. But notice what he said. And he said unto me, here was God's answer to Paul. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, Paul says now, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You know what Paul just said? I'll glory in my infirmities. I'm not going to hide behind, you know, words positive and negative. I am just going to glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me, because I'm weak. And then he goes on to say, therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. And please don't understand Paul as as being one who is saying, oh, I just love, man, just infirm me, (laughs) just reproach me, just hurt me, hit me, do whatever, that's not what he's saying. Understand the context of what Paul is saying. He says, I, therefore I take pleasure in infirmities. I'm going to go through those things. I'm going to go through reproaches. How many times did Paul tell us that he went through one thing after another for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Infirmities, reproaches, and necessities, and persecutions, and distresses for Christ's sake. I'll take pleasure in them. Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I'm strong. Why? Because his strength is made perfect in my weakness. I can stand, not because of me, but because of him. I'm victorious, not because of me, but because of him. I overcome, not because of me, but because of him. This is because of the word of God. Paul said, I'm afflicted, I'm I'm sorry, the, the psalmist said, I'm afflicted very much. Quicken me, O Lord, according unto thy word. Unto thy word. So here we go. If you're taking notes, the word of God not only guides us in our walk. Verses 105 and 106. It not only guides us in our weakness, verse 107, but it also guides us in our worship. Walk, weakness, worship. Verse 108. Accept, I beseech thee, the free will offerings of my mouth, O Lord. And teach me thy judgments. There was much more to worship than bringing a bull or a or a goat, and the shedding of their blood. Worship was a lot more than that. The mere form of ritual religion profited really very little. This was something that David knew well in the midst of his great repentance in Psalm fifty-one. He knew so well. Because he was able to say, and and, and that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to make this the word of God to us today. He said in verse 14 of Psalm 51, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice. Now get this thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. And if you mark any verse down or highlight it in this psalm, highlight verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. A broken and a contrite heart A heart broken by sin. A heart broken by affliction. A heart broken by wrong decisions. A heart that is contrite. Repentant. Heartily repentant of those misdeeds. And he says, oh God, you will not despise those sacrifices. You see, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The psalmist wanted to worship in truth. So he requested, teach me thy judgments. Teach me Thy ordinances. And what this verse reveals to us, Psalm 108. I'm I'm sorry, uh, verse 108 of Psalm 119. What this verse uh, reveals is the psalmist's passion for the word of God and its help, its helpfulness to instruct. See, we ought not to take the word of God lightly. We ought not to pick and choose what we want to read and what we don't want to read. We've been given this from Genesis to Revelation as God's word to us, God's light, and God's lamp. I'm I'm saddened when I have to tell you, and I tell you this a lot, that there are churches today that have completely put the Word of God aside. Oh, they may start with one verse of Scripture and say, Well, you know, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And then they go on to talk about how man can accomplish this and that by positive thinking. How sad that is. 66 books, 40 authors, not one contradiction in the scripture. It is a word that has been given to us for life. And so, God's word not only guides, but it also guards. Let's look now at verses 109 and 110. My soul is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget thy law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I erred not from thy precepts. When you think of that first phrase there in Psalm uh, 119 verse 109, that's a lot of words to say for a verse. That first phrase, my soul is continually in my hand, that's considered an idiom. An idiom is an accepted phrase or expression having a meaning different from the literal. So it's it's a figurative statement. My soul is continually in my hand. Now, for example, what we would say would be, my heart is in my mouth. You know, when something shocks us or something happens to us or or there's something that is, you know, too, uh, too fantastic for words, you know, we just, we sometimes say, man, my mouth is, I mean, my heart is in my mouth. It's like wanting to come out of me. And, and, and uh, the Hebrew, you know, we would say my heart is in my mouth, but the Hebrew says my soul is in my hand. It's, it's, a, it's a Hebrew idiom. My soul is in my hand, which is just another way of expressing the very same thought. Everything on the inside just wants to come out. It, it was an expression that was used in connection with King David. when, Before he was King David, when he was uh, just David, you know, the shepherd, that went and, and saved Israel from Goliath. King Saul, who was, was insanely jealous, issued orders that David was to be killed. Now, I'm, I'm kind of going through a lot of, a, a lot of history about David in, in just a few words here because of time. So, he, you know, he, this, this, this king, was, was he, he loved David, but then all of a sudden he wanted to kill David. He was jealous because people were praising David for having done what he had done to save Israel. So Saul's son, Jonathan, stood up for David. Somebody stood up for David and said this. I'm sorry, in 1 Samuel 19, verse 5, he said, For he did put his life in his hand. In other words, he faced his fears and stood before Goliath, knowing that it wasn't going to be him that would take him down, but that the God of Israel was strong enough to take him down. He put his life in his hand, and he slew the Philistine, and the Lord wrought a great salvation for all Israel. The son says to his father, Saul, you saw it. Thou sawest it and didst rejoice. Wherefore then, wilt thou sin against innocent blood to slay David without a cause? Just because you're a jealous person? So what this is telling us here... with. Uh, about the psalmist that writes Psalm 119, his dangers were real. My soul is continually in my hand. His dangers were real. He was afraid. His heart was in his mouth. But God's word quieted his fears. Yet do I not forget thy law, The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I erred not from thy precepts. Precepts, law, ordinances, statutes, commands. The word of God. Go back to verse 50 of Psalm 119, if you will, just for a moment. Verse 50. It says, this is my comfort in my affliction. For thy word has quickened me. This is my comfort in my affliction. This is what comforts me. Your word that has made me alive. Your word that has revived me. Your word that has quickened me. That's my comfort. And all of us need that comfort because all of us face certain uncertain things. We face certain uncertain things. And some of those uncertain things are very certain. The day after a message like this, I'm just warning you. Be ready to trust in God's word. God's word also hinders us, hinders our foes. God's word will stand between us and those who attack us. Look at verse 110, the wicked have laid a snare for me, and yet I erred not from thy precepts. You know, we we can't even imagine the the weight of the burden of being constantly in fear of being snared or trapped. David went went through that so much because of Saul. David had to remain on track, as it were, when Saul was laying trap after trap after trap after him. I mean, he sought to trap David by offering his, his daughter Merab to be his wife. He wanted to see if David had any political ambitions whatsoever. You know what David's answer was for Samuel 18 verse 18? David said unto Saul, who am I? And what is my life for my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? That made it very clear he had no political ambitions. And David said nothing when Saul gave her to someone else instead. It's fine with me. And then the next trap was set when Saul found out that his daughter, Michal, wanted to, to marry David. 1 Samuel, uh, uh, Samuel 18, verses 20 and 21. And Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. It, he wasn't pleased because he was going to have David as his son. law. He was pleased because he was going to give another opportunity to trap him. And that's what the next verse says. Saul said, I'll give him her that she may be a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. And wherefore Saul said to David, thou shalt shalt this day be my son-in-law, in in the one of the twain. Which is, that little phrase really should be a little earlier when it says, he said it for a second time. You will be my son-in-law. And we're not going to go continue on, but just understand that David's response could have been damaging to his cause. The Lord steered him safely around all these snares because David honored God's precepts. David honored God's word. You see, God's word can and will guard us from wrongdoing as it did with David. And then, of course, there was times when it didn't because David was very Fleshly minded at a time when he needed to be spiritually minded. Lastly, God's word also gladdens. It guides, it guards, and it gladdens. Verses 111 and 112. Thy testimonies have I taken as an heritage forever. For they are the rejoicing of my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform thy statutes all way even unto the end. Now, a heritage is something that we inherit. And there is nothing more precious or priceless as the word of God, the Holy Scriptures. But it will not yield its wealth without work. It will not yield its wealth without work. I mean, there's a, there's a story of a man who owned a vineyard. His sons believed their father to be quite wealthy. And since he was secretive about it, they could not be sure, but they hoped to inherit a fortune when he died. On his deathbed, he told his sons that the secret of his wealth was to be found in the vineyard. So the boys immediately began to dig hoping to find the treasure they believed to be hidden under the vines. And they toiled for months and months, being very careful not to damage the vines. But still, they were digging under the vines. What were they doing? Keep that thought in mind. In the course of time, they dug over every inch of the vineyard and discovered nothing. But that fall, their vineyard produced the finest crop of grapes on record. Well, they kept tilling the soil and mixing it up and you know, and it, and they were getting fed and they were getting watered properly and whatnot. Well, they realized what their wise father had done. He had forced them to stop loafing around and instead to cultivate the vineyard. The secret of his wealth was the vines which properly cared for would keep them rich and wealthy. And we put time into our study of the word of God. And I hope and pray that that's why you came today. Not just to worship the Lord, which is what we need to do anyway. And we love to do that. Not just to fellowship with one another and enjoy the, uh, the wonders of of. of you know, the family of God that, we, that he's given to us. I hope that we've come to study the word of God. Cultivate the soil of our hearts. But when we put time into our study the word of God, it will never fail to yield its riches to our souls. Lastly, verse 112, I have inclined my heart To perform thy statutes all the way even unto the end. Righteousness is to be our eternal pursuit. A tired horse will move faster and pull harder when it is heading for home. When the end is in sight. Some people find keeping God's word to be uphill, tiring work. Not the psalmist. He was heading home. That's the kind of perspective we need to have when it comes to the Word of God. I've inclined my heart to perform thy statutes always, always, even to the end. And folks, let me tell you this, we're getting close to home. We're getting close to home. I think of, again, sadly, the many who today do not want to even examine what the word of God has to say about prophecy and about the things of the coming of the Lord, about Jesus coming, about his, his uh, promise to gather us together and to snatch us away, as Paul said in First Thessalonians chapter 4. This is, this is the hope of the church. This is what comforts us. This is what we should be looking for. But there are churches in great numbers that today are saying, oh, no, 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 that's that's No, you know, some believe that all prophecy has already been fulfilled. That's nuts. It is. Prophecy is being fulfilled today. We see it in the news. And we compare it with the word of God and we say, wow, Jesus was right, wasn't he? Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13, the book of Revelation. First and second Thessalonians. These things are being fulfilled right now. Why? Because Jesus is coming for his people. Comfort one another with these words. I'm comforted in knowing that the Lord can break through the clouds at any moment. I'm thankful for the clouds that we've had the last couple of days. Makes me look up. And what was it that Jesus said? uh, Keep looking up and lift up your heads. Your redemption draws nigh. He's coming. So keeping God's word gives us momentum so that when steep places come, they will be more than half conquered. I mean, let's never lose sight of the end of the journey. I want you to consider, if you will, some of Paul's last thoughts and, and words to his son in the faith, Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. I'm going to do this a little quickly, but please understand. Paul is at his last. This is the last letter he writes. These are the last words that he has that put in print uh, to send to his son in the faith, Timothy. This is what he said in that last chapter of 2 Timothy. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure Is at hand. You know the word departure there in the Greek? Very interesting word because that word means to pull up your tent stakes and pack up your tent because you're going home. And that's what he said My departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous just shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Well, folks, I tell you this. I love his appearing. Well, has he appeared yet? Nobody's going to. And when he does, I want to love it even more. Because it tells me that he has kept his promise. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you and if I go to prepare a place for you I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there you may be also. We should love his appearing. I don't know what everybody else is loving today when they don't want to study prophecy or read the word of God. I want want to see him come. Let me close with this passage from Hebrews 12. I know y'all are familiar with it. Paul says in verse 1, wherefore seeing we are also, or we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, that is not the witnesses that are like looking at our lives right now. No, that's not what they're doing. This cloud of witnesses are every believer that has gone before us, that have given testimony of the grace of God and mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He says, Seeing that we are encompassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. Think about that. Looking unto Jesus... The author and the finisher of our faith. What does that mean? That means that Jesus is the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. He's the starting line and the finish line of our faith. That's what we pursue. That's what we push toward. To look unto Jesus. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He wasn't looking at the pain and the suffering of the cross. He was looking at the victory beyond that. The resurrection from the dead and the promise of eternal life and resurrection for all who believe. He endured the cross for us. He despised the shame of it. Being hung on the cross naked before all the world. And he is set down now at the right hand of the throne of God waiting that moment when the father says go and bring your bride home. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. Lest you be weary and faint in your minds. Don't be weary. Don't faint in your minds. Believe in the promises of Christ. And know that at any moment he can come. Our responsibility is to be ready. Ready. And we get ready by getting in to the Word of God. Stay there. Love His Word. Live His Word. And give His Word. The light and the lamp. And Jesus is that light.